Hey everyone, this is Jason, and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. For today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Leslie Field, the founder and chief technical officer of the Arctic Ice Project, who have set out to preserve and restore the Arctic ice. We've all heard about how the ice is melting and how certain coastal areas throughout the world will end up underwater if we don't get our act together. But as bad as that is, I've learned that the implications of the ice melting are even worse. Not trying to be grim, but that's just a reality and we need to face it. We need to do everything we possibly can to stabilize the global climate, and luckily we have people like Leslie and her team who are working hard to do just that. I learned a lot from our chat, and I hope you do too. Let's get into it. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Well, thank you for asking me to be on this podcast. This is uh, this is interesting and an honor. So can we start off by having you introduce yourself a bit and why climate change became of interest to you? Um, I'm Dr. Leslie Field. I've got, uh, I'm an engineer, PhD engineer and inventor, uh, degrees from great schools, MIT and UC Berkeley. And uh, I teach at Stanford every fall, a class on engineering, entrepreneurship, and climate change. Been doing this for 11 years. Um, I'm also a concerned mom of two. Uh, they are now in their 20s, both of them. But I got concerned about climate change when they were small. Uh, I've always loved environmentalism, uh, you know, long-time Sierra Club member, passionate hiker, wildflower gardener, all of that. Just love the environment. But I hadn't really been aware of just how dire the climate situation was until seeing the Inconvenient Truth movie by Al Gore in 2006. And at that time, my kids were young. They were six and 10 years old. And that movie made very clear to me that within their lifetimes, living right here in California where we are, um, that the impacts of climate change were going to drastically affect their lives. And so at that point I had, uh, because I had kids, had left the large R&D labs and had started up my own consulting company and uh, just uh, looked at these kids and was thinking, my gosh, this is this is really something that I have to take on. I need to wedge that in with all of the other work that I'm doing and just get get to it. Of What is the best way to make a difference? It happens at that time that I had just started being a consulting professor at Stanford as well. And so I got to attend many lectures about climate change. I hadn't majored in climate change. I hadn't majored in climate per se although I'd done a number of ecological pieces of work along the way. And so I was really intrigued with what would make a difference. With the background I had, chemical engineering, electrical engineering, MEMS specialization, microelectromechanical systems, I thought I would probably go into making better solar cells. But the more that I listened to things at Stanford in all of these various wonderful climate meetings and lectures, the more I understood it was going to take decades to transition the infrastructure, really, worldwide and the economy 
to get off carbon and to get even solar photovoltaics implemented at a scale that was going to make a difference in time. And so I looked back to that Al Gore movie and thought more deeply about what, what had I learned in that movie. And one of the things that kept grabbing my attention was that at that point in 2006, already the loss of reflective ice in the Arctic was leading to causing about 20% of global temperature rise. The rate of global temperature rise had been accelerated by the loss of Arctic ice. It was contributing mightily. And I thought, well, is that a reasonable thing for me to try to take on? And the answer was, if I could slow things down by 20%, that would be a huge, uh, a huge contribution. And one of the things that really stuck in my head, I mean, I'm one of billions of people, why on earth should I think that I could take on climate change, right? Um, was that I had been mentored by a phenomenal person at Hewlett Packard Labs. That was one of the large R&D labs that I'd worked in. And she had, uh, any, any of us who were lucky enough to be mentored by her, Barbara Waugh, um, she had gotten into our heads this wonderful quote if not me, who, if not now, when? And I started to think about that and thought about these wonderful institutions I had degrees from and these decades of experience as a researcher and inventor. And it's like, yeah, if not me, who? I, I might as well try. And so that's what made me bold enough to make the move to try to take something on. And Arctic ice looked like a really good thing to take on. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more I could say about all of that, but I'll let your questions lead me as to where, where you want to go in that story. But it has turned out, uh, certainly, you know, from all the time way back into 2006 when I started what I called my inconvenient hobby, because it was clearly a volunteer work at that point, you know, just seeing is there something I could constructively do um, until now when it's the full-time job. Plus, um, it, it's becoming more and more evident that the Arctic is incredibly important to all of us. And so you mentioned the reflectivity of the ice, but overall, why is the Arctic ice so important and how bad is the current situation? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, Arctic ice reflectivity is really important because historically, when the sun is shining up there, up northward, right, Arctic our northern hemisphere summer months, it's shining for 24 hours a day. And we have been reflecting that ice from what we've been terming our, our heat shield, right? The historic Earth's heat shield um, has been up there safely reflecting away much of that summer sun. It turns out that multi-year ice or multi-year ice with snow on it can reflect upwards of 70, 80, even 95% of incoming solar radiation, reflecting it safely away from the sea underneath, you know, the open ocean underneath, from ice underneath the top layers of ice, you know, it's, and so when we stop reflecting that away, think of it as being on a hot summer day, you've probably got to put on a white t-shirt, right? And, you know, and, and try to stay a little cooler. We've lost that white t-shirt. We've lost that heat shield. We're now got to black t-shirt on the open ocean in increasing areas of the Arctic. And that means that we, instead of reflecting away up to 95% of incoming sunlight 
throughout this large region up north, um, we are now absorbing 95%. We're reflecting maybe 5% away from the ocean. So that's a big change in our heat load. So what was once an outcome of climate change, you know, that things are getting warmer so ice is melting, is now driving further climate change. And depending whether you're looking at just sea ice or sea and land ice, you know, loss of reflectivity in the Arctic, we are adding, we're accelerating things by another 25 to 50 percent of how quickly we're heating up because of the CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. The greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere are what are driving global warming, except now we've got some accelerant here. So it's, so it's bad. Um, and we have lost, you asked how bad it is now, we have lost uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in, in the U.S., reported a year or two ago in their Arctic report card that we have lost 95% of the oldest, which means the most reflective, ice in the Arctic. Um, so we have very little of this multi-year most reflective ice left. What we do get every year is we get back thin ice, but it melts more quickly. And so it's this accelerating, it's, a, it's what's called a positive feedback loop. That's what actually caught my eye first in that Gore movie was besides the fact that it was a very large single contribution, it's a positive feedback effect. And that means that the more it happens, the faster it keeps happening. And that, so it says positive feedback, you might think, oh, beneficial. No, 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 it's, it just means it's going faster and faster. It's actually very deleterious. So it, it's quite bad. And we're, we're becoming more at risk of uh, some interesting uh, risk factors of increased methane releases. Uh, some people are calling them tipping points for the climate. Other people are worried that might be a little alarmist, but we're, we're in a, a tight spot, I would say, as far as this accelerant is going. I've read that scientists are projecting iceless summers by 2030, but what, what exactly would that mean for the planet? So there's a way to explain this. I love, there's an excellent book you, you and your viewers might want to check out called A Farewell to Ice by Peter Wadhams. He's a phenomenal uh, professor uh, emeritus from uh, Cambridge University over in the UK and uh, head of department there, was. And uh, in this, he talks about, it's, it's just a beautiful illustration. When you are, when you have a glass of ice water and you've got it out there again under a hot sun you know what the temperature of that water is it's at the melting point the freezing point of ice it's you know so zero degrees centigrade you just know that because all the energy that you're putting into that while ice is there is going into that phase transition that changing from solid form to liquid form so your temperature stays steady. That's what's happening in the Arctic now, although it's a little different temperature because it's salt water. But, you know, roughly that's the same, the same logic. Once all the ice is gone in your drink, sitting out there on your deck under the sun, now all that energy that was going into melting the ice into water is going into heating the water. So that once all the ice is gone in the summer, you start uh, warming things up much more rapidly um, than you were instead of that steady temperature 
of your ocean, you are now heating it up much further. So that's one, one part of the effect. Another part of the effect is that as the ocean heats, we've already had a lot of our sea level rise to date has been more from thermal expansion than from melting of glaciers. And so when the water has been getting warmer, you know, as I say, you, you know that it's going to, well, it, it's more complicated than I'm saying, but at any rate, as it warms up, it, it starts expanding. And so sea level rise will be driven higher. And then this whole risk of shallow methane deposits. There are immense shallow uh, methane containing deposits in the Arctic that have been sheltered by overlying ice. And as that ice disappears, they're not sheltered anymore. And they get to melt and they get to release methane. The problem with methane is it's an even more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. And so that's a big accelerant on climate change when that gets into the atmosphere. So there, there are several risk factors there. So I actually watched a TED Talk with Peter Wadhams to prepare for this. And Perfect. he said that we need a Manhattan Project to undertake this problem. So I'm wondering, do you think that enough attention and resources have been dedicated to restoring the Arctic ice? By no means. <laughs> By no means. <laughs> Our work, we, we have been formed as a nonprofit organization. And most work in climate change uh, has apparently, of, of our sort at least, has been funded by philanthropic donations. And of all the philanthropic donations, only 3% goes to climate. And of that, I can assure you, a very tiny amount goes to us. Um, it's made all the difference and let us make some progress, uh, for sure, but it's uh, it, not nearly enough. So with all of that, we, um, we're a very determined crew, a uh, very tight crew. Um, we have become, as far as we have heard and, and been told, the farthest ahead Arctic restoration effort in the world. But uh, we need far more resources than we have for all, all kinds of climate intervention studies, uh, mitigation you know, of, of greenhouse gases in the first place, and adaptation efforts, which are what you do when you haven't managed to keep things under control. It needs much more attention than it's been getting. And uh, we regard what we do as the third leg of this stool of what you have to do for climate. That is, you've got, you know, the job one is to stop emitting CO2, right? It's to just stop the greenhouse gas emissions. Affiliated with that is, to the extent that's possible, we need to pull those gases out of the atmosphere. That's a very hard job. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of promising research in all of these areas, but implementation at the scales we need, it isn't there yet for either the ceasing the emissions or pulling them down. Adaptation is what you do, right, when, when you haven't gotten the job done. Climate restoration or climate interventions are what various people are proposing. And Ours is one of the nature-based climate interventional approaches. It's trying to restore an ecosystem, ice in the Arctic, in a place where until recently it was. So we're trying to rebuild a natural system. Think of it as like you know, um, repairing a coral reef or, or 
you know, restoring ecosystems that have gotten damaged. And we're trying to do it with as natural a material as possible. That is, we've been evaluating a lot of materials options. This is what I, as an engineer, had decided would be the most promising approach that I could think of, and it keeps bearing up. We, we collaborate more and more internationally, uh, getting our ideas vetted and, and uh, safety and efficacy uh, checked out is, is what we are working on now as the next levels of, of collaboration. It bears up as a useful thing to do. And what we're using, what we've landed on after testing many materials for, what's the safest way to do this, is something that's uh, a, a form of silica, silica glass. And it's amorphous, so, so that avoids some hazards you might think of with silica dust. It's, it's amorphous, not crystalline. It's in a size range chosen to be safe. And what's lovely about silica is that it's present in all of our ecosystems. It's, it's just a, one of the prevalent materials on Earth. So we've all evolved with it, which minimizes risk, which makes it very close to natural solution. So those are, the, those are how one would be working to uh, mitigate this, this large risk and large driver of climate change. But it's, it's not receiving nearly enough funding to date. Any of any of the efforts that are aligned in this sort of way. And have you introduced your project to lawmakers? In a way, yes. The the events that I've been able to speak at personally have been the UN's first climate restoration workshop, um, which was in uh, September 2019, uh, and uh, we've had. Uh, one of our board members uh, and also a member of our scientific advisory board, so governing board, scientific advisory board, Steve Zornitzer, who uh, was high up in NASA Ames, so the NASA branch that is in California, got to introduce some legislation, got to help introduce some legislation in DC uh, two years back. At the same time, I was making a northward swing through uh, some of our Alaska field testing and, and conference uh, interactions that we were doing. And Steve, uh, Steve got to help introduce that. It was a climate restoration uh, initiative. Uh, he's got more of the details on that than I do. I could get them to you if you want them to have as a backup piece of material to show to your viewers. Okay, yeah. Also, what does it mean for you that the United States just voted in a president and a majority in the Senate and House that not only believes in climate change, but claims to believe that it is an existential threat? I, I am very encouraged. Uh, it's, uh, it was certainly a disappointment and a grave concern to have us pull out of the Paris Agreement, for instance, right? That's just a terrible message to send to the world. And it's a, it was a terrible slowing down of what we know full well we need to do. Climate change is hard. I will say I've been in touch with, you know, through scientific conferences, uh, the AGU meeting is one that we generally make a pretty big attendance at, uh, American Geophysical Union. And uh, the annual fall meeting in San Francisco this year, all on Zoom, was an opportunity to collaborate with other organizations interested in the kinds, assessing the kinds of things that we're assessing with, especially with climate modeling. We do, we do 
some of that. We contract some of that out that is uh, really profound. And uh, we are got to collaborate on the AGU sessions that we've proposed, that they proposed uh, with NCAR, one of the big climate modeling national labs in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and got to expand our sessions, our technical sessions. And I would uh, put in a proposal for a town hall, which we got to hold, which was focused really very large extent on policy and governance, because it's this is an area where just a technical solution won't do. If you cannot have some independent way of assessing the safety and the risks of any proposed intervention, and that should not be in the hands of the inventors. That should be an independent assessment, you know, with the concerns of what's what's in the interests of humanity and, and the ecosystems in general, you know, planet-wide. And so I got we got the chance to bring in governance and policy experts in discussions, again, partnering with NCAR. They have similar views on this. And uh, their CCIS program is brilliant. And we got to work together on, on a lot of that and uh, have these wonderful discussions there and then hosted a couple of Zoom follow-ons, uh, discussions of this just general, you know, trying to figure out how can we help promote, catalyze, this governance and, and this policymaking that's needed worldwide uh, to assess thoroughly all the safety and effectiveness and economics of doing these things. And then how do we get them implemented at scale? And so that's a, it's a big job and it's one that we work very hard on. Hmm. And do you think that the narrative that the melting ice in itself being a major driver of climate change is expressed enough? Because I, I don't want to speak for others, but I personally did not really understand that the melting of the ice is actually responsible for a significant amount of global temperature rise and can be connected to these increases of weather disasters from wildfires to droughts. I feel like I only thought of the sea rising aspect, which of course is also horrifying and disastrous. It's not publicized enough, um, but one thing, you know, we're collaborating more and more with researchers here and abroad. There's a wonderful researcher in Norway, uh, Professor Lars Smedsred, who points out, and it's, yes, this is so true, um, that, you know, Arctic melt is so visible. It's something that people can see. Unless you're going to deny satellite imagery and photography, you can see it's happening. And the way that I bring this back is, you know, there, there's some distrust of science going on. Hopefully, again, as you say, with the transition, we're going to have people who actually trust science, uh, you know, uh, more in charge, which is terrific. But if I look out my window right now and I look at this blue sky with light clouds, right, what I can't see is the CO2 level. It just looks like a beautiful sunny day. I'm not going to see that we're over 400 ppm CO2. I've got to trust somebody to know that. But if I'm reading the headlines or I'm looking at, you know, photographs showing me polar bears, skinny polar bears swimming, right, you know, in those long stretches between ice where they can pull off, um, you know, pull up and rest a bit. Um, you can see that, right? Anybody can see that as long as they've got access to media. It doesn't take a great deal of trust. But the CO2 
we can't tell. I can't tell. I'm, I'm a PhD engineer and I can't look at the sky and tell you what the CO2 level is. So I think that ICE is actually helping to make the case to people worldwide that, oh, something big is happening here. Maybe this climate change thing is real. So it's, it's kind of helpful in that way, right? Although it's a disastrous thing. But those type of effects and this acceleration are under underappreciated. Um, they really do need to be wider known. And our idea is very simple. What we're doing, how, what on earth do you do about it? You know, we, we are proposing to make an intervention and we're doing all the climate modeling and safety evaluations and, and field you know, testing in very controlled, contained areas, uh, you know, with permissions always, um, just to see is there something one can do? What we're using is this material that is uh, very thin, uh, hairs with layers of material that basically looks a lot like, got to get to a green background, I guess, uh, looks a lot like beach sand. And in fact, it's mostly silica, which is the main element of, of beach sand. And this, a very thin layer of this, turns out to be the most practical and safe and inexpensive method we've found yet to help restore ice. And the idea, as I've, I've mentioned uh, in just words, but is that open ocean only reflects about 5% of sunlight, incoming sunlight. And that's what we increasingly have, as you can see here. We've got increasingly open ocean. This is in the dead of winter, and it's there's a lot of open ocean. By the time the summer, as you've mentioned, by 2030, we will be ice-free in the summer, right? Is gonna reflect only 5% of that incoming sunshine in the summer, solar radiation. If you've got the thin ice, you're reflecting maybe 30%, you're absorbing 70%. So you're reflecting more than open ocean. If you've got this old multi-year ice, maybe with snow on it, you're reflecting 80 to 95%. And what we're doing is we're proposing an intervention where in very limited areas of the Arctic, very key strategically chosen small areas, we're studying something about a 1% area of, of potential Arctic sea ice to treat. We've just been doing modeling studies on these to show that we, with just this slightly increased reflectivity, can actually make a difference beyond the treatment area by a bit and, and make a, a difference in global climate. And that's, that's a big deal. So how do you deal with the fact that this work is so urgent and yet as a scientist, you have to be very methodical? Oh, uh, <laughs> you know, you have to be methodical, um, not just as a scientist, but as a conscientious citizen. Um, there is, it is urgently needed, but you've got to do it right. One thing that I have is absolutely the first principle that we adhere to in everything is first do no harm. And that's, if you're thinking about doing something that may intentionally alter the ecosystem, even if it's simply to restore something that until recently was there, you have a duty to figure out what are all the consequences that might occur from that? And so it's got to be methodical. Uh, what excites me is the building ability to collaborate with others of like mind to be able to 
look at all those frameworks. A lot of what's exciting about collaborating with NCAR, for instance, is that whole CCIS is this whole looking at what are the pluses and minuses of interventional strategies. We're very much on the same page with that. So you have to look at, you know, where you may make a huge beneficial impact in the Arctic by doing something like this. But you really have to look in your climate modeling and in all best assessments you possibly can. Is there any unintended consequence to the marine organisms? Well, we're, we're getting uh, building collaborations with uh, an expert group of uh, Norwegian marine biologists, for instance, to take a look at that. They have the right equipment facilities and they're very interested in working with us of how can we get that to be done. Because we know from the existing information that there is no expected harm to any individual organism. That we, we know that to a pretty good certainty, but we haven't been able to test it on the specific organisms that are in the Arctic. And what if you artificially, uh, you know, by, by putting in something, again, it's close to what's there in the ocean already, but it isn't exactly that. What if you boost uh, one particular organism's population relative to another? Is that beneficial or harmful? So there's a lot of things to consider. And so what if you change your precipitation pattern a little bit in some other area of the world? Is that a net good for the planet or is that really devastating? Can you change things so that there's no negative impact? You know, if we found there was some some unintended boosting of one marine population versus another, is that okay? Or should we change our material? So there's a continuing feedback of information as we're probing deeper and deeper into this to try to help us. We definitely have to determine what's the best, what's the best we can do. And that's with, with the least or zero harm to anything. And that's, that's a mighty challenge. So yes, it's urgently needed. Uh, and we've got to do it right. It seems that you're a really big fan of collaboration. How has that been important in this whole process? Ah, uh, there's no way we're going to get the job done alone. <laughs> for one thing. Um, a lot of what's, you know, I've got a deep expertise in a couple of different engineering fields and increasingly in climate change as I've taken this on. But what I know out of everything that's needed to know is still a small fraction. And if I don't have people to work with, both within our team, right, wonderful volunteers who work with us as well, and collaborators and contractors we get to work with, if I don't have the expertise personally, I have to work with others um, and we have to share our knowledge in order to develop a solution that's comprehensive enough, right? So without collaboration, we, you know, we won't get the job done in time. With collaboration and funding, we just might. Right? <laughs> and that's our deadline, right? We have uh, a very solid, uh, although constantly evolving, uh, five-year research plan to get all of the rest of these, you know, we've done initial proof of concepts. Uh, 
what we need now is to get the work done to be able to answer all the safety and effectiveness and you know economic and, and just the details of how questions that are remaining so that policy policy people governmental people governance you know permitting can evaluate is this really the right thing to do and that's careful and extensive work and it's got to be done but it's got to be done urgently and with the right funding we could do that within the span of another five years um, and that really should be our deadline because once we get our work done then come the international collaborations to actually get this done at scale and how do you stay so positive even while working on something that pretty much has doomsday implications well, you put your finger on it, right? <laughs> if you think about this and the pandemic and all the difficulties of getting our work done, you know, without being able to go there generally now, right? Uh, so you have to change your collaboration model, for instance, with the people we work with up in Utkiagvik, up in the farthest, as far north as you can go in the U.S., the farthest north of Alaska. It, with, with the wonderful UIC Science Native Corporation uh, people we work with up there. But we have, we can't go there, right? And so the challenges just keep mounting with, with pandemic and with climate change urgency and with all the confusion that is intentionally and unintentionally in the media about the importance of climate change in Arctic. Yeah, it gets hard. The thing that keeps me going though I, I love what a, a colleague has termed turning climate anxiety into climate action. And it's the fact that I am working on the single best thing that I can think of and that many others have said, oh, you know, I've, I've been consulting with experts all along and say, no, you, that sounds like a good idea. You've got to do this, right? So when you're working on the best thing that you can think of, that you can actually have some effect on. And you've got an increasing number of people collaborating with you so you can see there's a light at the end of the tunnel that you could get the job done. That's actually pretty inspiring. It's exhausting emotionally too, you're right. You know, every, every headline people send me about how completely doomed <laughs> you know, this or that species or aspect of the ice is, it's hard. And you could just fall into that despair or you could keep going. I keep looking at my kids. It's like, I got to do this, you know, <laughs> got to keep going. We may find in the end that it was, you know, that there was something better we could have done. If that's true, I'll be the first one to leap onto, oh, there's the better path. But it, it matters. I think the single worst thing we can do is give up. So let's not. And that's why I, I have as our tagline, really, every degree matters. Every degree is worth fighting for. Even if we don't keep our temperature rise to one and a half degrees C or two degrees C, every degree farther is unimaginably worse. So we got to do everything we can. Absolutely. And something I ask everyone, what would you say to someone who wants to make a positive change but doesn't know where to start? Ah, well, that's why I teach my Stanford class. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, what we do there 
is I start out with an anxious group of students, increasingly so over these 11 years. And, and I am increasingly knowing that the right initial question is, how many of you were worried about climate change and its impact? All the hands go up, you know, this year by Zoom, but, but all the hands go up. And I make sure to get them to share at some point during the class, why are you doing this class? Why, why is this important to you? And there are, you know, it ranges from really well-formed thoughts of what they need to do to less well-formed thoughts at the beginning. Um, but I managed to pull in a, a variety of, you know, I share my story first and last lecture and frame the class, but in the middle eight lectures, there are these astonishing people with astonishing solutions that they're working on that get to share with the class. And we've increasingly been able to bring in policy and governance and financial people as well, regulatory, you know, just the whole, the whole suite of what would you have to consider if you, if you were trying to start something up, if you were trying to do something about this. And I find every single student who sticks with the class, you know, a couple of them, I, I'm not sure they can take that despair <laughs> that they walk in with. But every single student that sticks with the class, you can see sooner or later in one of their weekly summaries that this, this is what I want to do. And, you know, whether or not that's what they stick with longer term, they have found something in that framework, in that wide variety of ways you could contribute that they could do. And it's not just engineers, you know, we've had philosophers taking this class too. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a broad suite of people who get to grab onto, I see, I could do that, you know, and, and we help them amplify and share with other class members, how, you know, over smaller Zoom discussions, how could I make this into a reality? We try to give them the tools. Um, as you know, if you're not taking or auditing the class and, and don't get the benefit of that kind of suite of speakers, I would say that there's a, uh, uh, you know, some frameworks there that are really helpful. Um, there's a thing called Climate Base, which helps people who are interested in climate jobs uh, to find it. It's sort of a LinkedIn for climate. Evan Hines runs that. He's, he's terrific. Uh, I went to his launch uh, of that organization. He'd invited me to speak at it. And he had packed that room. I, I haven't seen so much energy. It was a couple years back, before, you know, when you could still meet in person. And it, was, and it has only grown. So there are, there's, there's one particular terrific way to get in there. Um, I've heard of another effort like that in, uh, in Florida that's getting launched as well. Um, and then there's a drawdown, Project Drawdown, uh, which is a deliberate uh, listing evaluation of, it started out to be top 50, I think they're up to top 70, uh, climate solution things that you can do from ranging from changing your diet to commuting less to, you know, just to changing the way this industry is run, to, to empowering women. I mean, there's, there's a, it's a very broad range of things that we as a planet know how to do today that would make a very large difference. And actually one of the chief officers, one of the C-suite officers of Drawdown uh, was my co-speaker, was a co-panelist at that launch thing for, for Climate Base. So it's uh, Crystal Chisel, she's amazing. and she. She came to speak in my class again this year. Um, there, there's so much you could do. 
there is so much you could do. And I find people telling me, well, I'm not an engineer. I don't know what I can do. Well, maybe you can spread the word. Maybe you're, you could be a fundraiser. Maybe you can just make sure that your neighbors understand how important this is. Maybe, maybe you could do an impactful podcast like you're doing, right? There's so many ways. I'll do something. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you all for listening. If you're interested in learning more, Dr. Leslie Fields will be moderating a webinar discussion with renowned polar expert, Professor Donald Perovich of Dartmouth University. That's going to be on January 28th at 4.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We will share the link on all of our social media. And if you don't have any of that, just reach out to me at jason at boldmovesonly.com and I can send it your way. Have a great day and let's be bold.